Hello, and welcome to Crashing the War Party. We are fresh from a Thanksgiving break and raring to go in our ongoing campaign to annoy the blob and illuminate the rest of the outside the Beltway crowd about all the dastardly things that the military-industrial complex is doing in our name. We'll be interviewing Stephanie Savelle at the Cost of War Project and Brown University. But first, we want to talk about global force posture. What is that? Well, for the last several months, there's been a parlor game in town in which observers of the administration and the military are trying to suss out whether the Biden administration would take a different approach uh, from their predecessor on the military footprint abroad. Would they scale back from the Middle East, double down on military primacy in the Pacific to challenge China? There are two documents that would speak to this. One is the national security strategy, which we are still waiting for. And then there's the global force posture review, which apparently has just been released. Well, a summary of it has just been released to journalists this week. Basically, it screams status quo, which means it won't please anybody, not the hawks who want to see a more robust military presence in East Asia, or the restrainers like us who wanted Biden to start extricating from the Middle East and other places across the globe. The biggest news is that the military footprint really isn't going anywhere anytime soon. According to the Wall Street Journal in the Indo-Pacific, the review directs additional cooperation with allies and partners to advance, and I'm quoting here, initiatives that contribute to regional stability and deter potential Chinese military aggression and threats from North Korea. Um, the, initiatives, the initiatives include seeking greater regional access for military partnership activities, enhancing infrastructure in Australia and the Pacific Islands, and planning rotational aircraft deployments in Australia, as announced in September in that uh, now infamous AUKUS agreement. Uh, the Global Force uh, Posture Review also informed uh, Secretary Austin's approval of the permanent stationing of a previously rotational attack helicopter squadron and artillery division headquarters in Korea, which was announced earlier this year. These troops will stay, if not increase, in Europe, and they're still assessing the Middle East footprint, though, though they are very mindful of ongoing counterterrorism issues. So, Dan, I've, I've laid all that out. Uh, what are you thinking about this uh, you know, posture review and, and what it might mean for uh, the global footprint going forward. Uh, sure. So one thing that struck me as I was looking at this, the results of this review is that I was reminded very much of the, the sanctions review that the Treasury Department just completed, uh, in which they spent a huge amount of time, they spent most of the year going through the motions of this review process, only to conclude that basically nothing's going to change. And apparently everything that Trump handed them is fine. Uh, and so it's, it's this bizarre uh, embrace of the status quo that they were given by Trump after having run very heavily against Trump's foreign policy as incompetent and incoherent and terrible. Uh, but they're basically going to keep almost all of it uh, intact. And it, it was also, I mean, it was also uh, striking to me how much this lines up with uh, what we were hearing from administration officials regarding the U.S. presence in the Middle East, uh, because you had uh, Brett McGurk 
going to the Bahrain Security Conference uh, and Secretary Austin going there as well, uh, basically to, to tell all of the clients in the region they don't have to worry. We're not leaving. We're not going anywhere. Uh, our presence will remain the same. And sure enough, uh, that's exactly what's happening. Uh, there will be no diminution of U.S. military footprint in any country. It, it's incredible uh, that they're, they're trying to claim that they're putting East Asia as the top priority in their, in their overall strategy, but they refuse to make any choices to reduce the commitments elsewhere. And so the, the, the net result is our military footprint overall is going to increase, uh, but it's going to continue to be this, this kind of illogical, strategic uh, set of deployments that, that don't seem to be uh, organized very well at all. Uh, so we we have this uh, military footprint in the world uh, that seems destined only to keep getting bigger because nobody is ever willing to to pull out anywhere for fear of being accused of uh, abandonment of this or that client. And and really, there there are no clients in the world more deserving of abandonment than the ones that we have in the Middle East. Uh, these are governments that have that add little or nothing to U.S. security. Uh, they're mostly headaches for us to manage, uh, and they implicate us in terrible abuses. So it, it really ought to be very easy for the Biden administration, if they want to live up to their human rights rhetoric, uh, to pull the plug on a lot of these relationships and to pull troops out of these uh, countries. But uh, they, they simply won't do it. Yeah, and I and I don't know how easy it would be. I was talking to somebody about this yesterday because I, you know, was equally frustrated as you are right now. And I said, you know, he has all of he has most Americans in polling over the last few years have agreed that the endless wars are counterproductive. They don't make us more safe. Uh, President Trump had put his finger on the pulse of the nation. Uh, when he ran for office in 2016 and won in part on a platform for getting out of Iraq, uh, for getting out of Afghanistan and endless wars. And so it, see, it would seem that it would be no better time than now to start extricating, at least from the Middle East. Uh, but, you know, the response that I got was politically he can't do it. You know, he is bogged down with all sorts of political fights on the domestic front. And then he is double-bogged by this uh, ongoing uh, decades-long fear that Democrats have of looking soft on terror, on soft on uh, military issues and defense. And so he's looking at his, you know, his plate and saying, well, if the military is coming to me and they say that we have to double down in China and that we're not yet ready to uh, leave the Middle East and that we need to bulk up our forces in Europe to deter Russia, then, you know, let them make the decision because he just can't fight a two-front war politically, uh, for lack of better words. And, okay, I get that. I've been around long enough to know that Democrats have been hobbled by the specter of being soft for years. But to me, it doesn't cut it because I believe in my gut that the American people would agree. Yeah. Would he take the hit from the grifters on the right, would call him defeatist. They would call him an appeaser, uh, soft, all, you know, you know, all the attacks. Yeah, he probably will. But in the end, doing what's right is, is preferable, at least to me. And maybe I'm naive. And I do think that the American people would back him on that. At least start with the Middle East. 
where like you pointed out, we have no reason to be there anymore. We can, we can build relationships with our partners. We can help them build their own security architecture. You know, I think that's what they want, but we don't have to lead. We don't have to be physically there and to continue selling all of these high-tech weapons, which keeps us entrenched there. Absolutely. And, and the, I mean, really the weapon sales are the, the glue that keep these relationships uh, bound together. They're, they're the things that, that stick us to these clients uh, when we would rather be, when I think most people would rather be rid of them uh, because there, there's then this vested interest in keeping those flows of weapons going. And, and that has certainly been happening with the UAE and the Saudis again under Biden. Um, and, and I think one of the reasons that there isn't more of a clamor to get our forces out of the Middle East is that people don't have a full appreciation of how many people we have there. Right. We have tens of thousands of military personnel scattered throughout the region, uh, you know, a large bulk of them concentrated in the Persian Gulf uh, along the, the coast uh, opposite Iran. So it's, uh, it's, it's actually a very large commitment of our forces that we don't need to have uh, there, there are no threats to the U.S. emanating from there uh, that would that would require that presence. That military presence is there to guard these countries that we don't need to guard. Uh, it's it's a it's very it is very frustrating because it's such a clear disconnect between what U.S. security requires and what protecting these clients requires and yeah. and, and the, the the two are really at odds with one another and it's i think it's only because you have so many vested interests that want to keep these relationships going uh, that that doesn't get through more clearly and it's why there isn't more pressure on the president to actually reduce those uh, force levels yeah and i and i the military is never going to earnestly ask that force levels be reduced. I mean, it's not in their DNA to, it, to reduce their uh, sustainability uh, on these mission fronts uh, in, in, in any way. So we get it. We get it that the military is going to inflate threats. They're going to inflate uh, the need uh, for, for troops. Uh, but, you know, Biden plays, he's the president of the United States. This is a civilian-led national security um, I get it that he's spooked after what happened in Afghanistan. Uh, he sees that he is being blamed for the chaotic withdrawal there. Uh, he's holding the bag and he doesn't want there to be an event in which there is a major terrorist attack, um, whether it be there or some other place where we have U.S. interests, uh, God forbid, here, anywhere, um, and then have him be blamed for reducing the military presence that, that somehow re the reduction of our presence there ha had resulted in some sort of attack. I get that. It's, 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 it's politics. Uh, but uh, as you said, there, 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 there is no reason to have the tens of thousands of troops there Honestly, I think we may need to bring somebody on this show maybe sometime soon who could articulate uh, the difference between having an offshore response mechanism uh, to respond to military threats as opposed to having tens of thousands of troops stationed permanently in a region like the Middle East. Uh, what, what's more efficient? What is more effective? Uh, I'd, I'd really like to know. 
Doug McGregor had a great piece in the American Conservative, I believe it was yesterday, about the fact that, you know, we can put all of these ships in the Pacific, in the Pacific and put all these assets. Um, but it does, it's not to say that it's deterrent, but it didn't work in Pearl Harbor and World War II, and it's not going to work now. And I find that, a, I, I find that a very um, provocative um, angle on this whole issue that we have uh, an admiral uh, just recently had uh, made a speech uh, to, um, I believe it was, it, I'm getting it up now, the U.S. 7th Fleet's commander called in a speech for an expanded presence by U.S. and allied aircraft carriers in the Pacific to persuade China and Russia that, quote, today is not the day to start a conflict. You know, this was just, uh, this is Vice Admiral Carl Thomas speaking Tuesday. Um, you know, so it, he, he is indicating, you know, as we know, that they're using these, this force presence as a deterrent. But there are really smart people like Doug McGregor that are saying, no, it's actually an accelerant, not a deterrent. And, and right. be careful what you wish for. Right, well, and, and we, we just need to think about it. If, if the tables were turned and another major power were projecting that kind of power into our vicinity, we would, of course, view it as threatening, as aggressive, not as something that is intended to maintain the peace. And so we, you know, I think we, to some extent, a lot of people higher up in our government sort of buy our own propaganda a little too much. And they, they assume that, you know, the benevolence of our intentions will be obvious to everyone, uh, assuming that we are, in fact, being benevolent. Uh, when, when, you know, when other governments are bound to view these things as, as threats to them, uh, as provocative. And so that, that has to be taken into account when you think about the, these forward deployments. Uh, another thing to think about in terms of forward deployments in the Pacific is that maintaining the tempo of operations for the 7th Fleet has had disastrous effects on the morale and the equipment of the Seventh Fleet. Why do you? Why do we keep having these accidents uh, of of ships colliding with civilian ships? Uh, why do we have so many uh, problems in the Seventh Fleet? It's because the the force is being overstretched and strained by too many missions and and too much of a demand on exactly. their resources. And so, I mean, of course, there will always be people who say, well, then we should just increase the size of the Navy and spend more. But we, you know, we ought to reconsider whether the, the strategy that's driving these, this frenetic activity actually makes sense. And, and that's the, the part that doesn't ever get examined. And so what, what disturbs me about the, the status quo bias of this posture review is that there's no attempt to think about why we're doing any of the things we're doing. We just keep doing it because it's what we've done for decades, and we're going to keep doing it, I guess, for fear that something might go wrong if we don't. And it, that, that's no way to make uh, good policy decisions. Stephanie Saville. She is a senior researcher at the Watson, Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs and the co-director of the Costs of War Project at Brown University. She is an anthropologist of militarism and security and civic engagement in the United States and Brazil. Well, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, thank you for coming on. We appreciate it. Uh, you wrote about your research last month for the American Prospect in an article called The War on Terror Accelerates in Africa uh, that, I, that I found very interesting. 
Uh, many Americans would be surprised to learn that the U.S. is involved to one degree or another in multiple conflicts in Africa right now. Which countries is the U.S. most involved in militarily, and how does this fit into the larger war on terror? Well, that piece and my work in uh, in West Africa in particular grew out of a map that I put together for the Cost of War Project showing all the places in the world the U.S. has engaged in some sort of counterterrorism operation. And it's a striking visual because outside of the Middle East, it really shows more kind of activity and more icons where there's action in Africa um, than in any other place. And this is something that, you know, as just as you say, a lot of Americans are not really aware of. Um, so we sometimes hear about Somalia in the, in the news, um, and, uh, and there's certainly a lot of U.S. Um, drone strike activity there, um, and, and even kind of on-the-ground um, combat. We documented, for example, um, an Al-Shabaab attack on a U.S. military base in Kenya um, where there was exchange of gunfire. This is the sort of thing that we kind of brought to light through um, a, a database that compiled both government sources and investigative journalism. So it's not something that the government kind of publishes or, um, you know, releases in any one place um, for the, you know, concerned public. Um, and a lot of times, news of those sorts of events um, only come to light when some sort of tragedy occurs. Um, usually if, you know, a U.S. service member is killed, like as we saw in, in 2017 in Niger um, and that incident in, in Kenya in which a couple people um, were injured and killed. And, um, and so um, my research I did, what I did was a kind of a deep dive into Burkina Faso, which of all the conflicts uh, in Africa is one that Americans probably know some of the lead out. Um, and uh, and I, I basically, you know, what the U.S. is doing in a lot of places is so-called training and assistance, um, which sounds fairly innocuous. Uh, you know, who wouldn't want help in counterterrorism, right? But um, I did a, a trip to Burkina Faso just before the pandemic lockdown in 2020 um, and spoke with displaced people and um, people in civil society and government um, about what U.S. security assistance has meant in Burkina Faso. And what I found was, you know, it's not like the U.S. is a primary player. It's actually, you know, the U.S. has played a minor role compared to the French, which is the former, former colonial power in West Africa, and they've taken the lead in the so-called fight, you know, war on terror in that region. Um, what the U.S. has done is provided some, in, you know, huge infusion of resources. So um, lots of funding for security assistance and military equipment and training um, and, and aid to the French in terms of, um, you know, aid with uh, surveillance of what in the region they called jihadist groups um, and, uh, and, you know, refueling and, and, and those sorts of things. The, you know, the French, so a representative of the French embassy said, you know, Operation Barkhane, which is the French operation, would be nothing without uh, American assistance. So we do play an important role, even though it's it's a backseat role to the French. Um, and and my paper just really asked that question of you know what is the U.S. role in particular. 
And it traces how um, the narrative of the war on terror and all of the institutional and economic supports that go to back up that narrative have made an impact in that we started funding a kind of a war on terror approach before the, there was any sort of problem with militant violence in the Sahel, which really grew up after um, 2013, the destabilization of Mali. That's when things kind of really, the conflict really got started. We, we have been funding Burkina Faso and counterterrorism since 2009. So well before anyone within the U.S. government um, even thought that that region was, was a, a, a potential problem. Um, and, and it basically shows how what we've enabled the Burkina Bay government to do is wage their own domestic war on terror on a group called the Fulani, which is a, a herding ethnic group um, that has been Islamic um, since before like colonial times um, and have long been looked down on by other ethnic groups, including the um, Mossi, which is the, the one that uh, the primary, the majority ethnic group in Burkina Faso and the one that has most of the control of government. And so what happens is the Burkina Bay government and all of the militia groups that it is explicitly arming and supporting are attacking the Fulani as terrorists. Um, and there are all these kinds of complicated local dynamics at stake, including the effects of climate change, um, the ways that that herders are, you know, being forced further afield by desertification. That's raising tensions over land use. There are, as I said, these kind of colonial and pre-colonial uh, dynamics between these various ethnic groups. And, and all of that is, and, and, you know, power differentials between neighbors, between different communities, and all of that is going into this really complex mix and complex conflict. And the U.S. kind of goes in and says, you know, here, we're going to give you lots of money and, and guns and military equipment to help you in your fight against the terrorists, um, which is not only, you know, there's been more civilians killed by the Burkina Bay security forces than by these militant groups. Um, and what happens is that becomes one of the biggest recruiting devices for, um, for the, uh, the militant groups. They say, you know, you killed my brother or my father, and um, I'm going to take up arms and and fight back against the state. It's just this, you know, it's, it's it's retaliation, and it's also people are joining militant groups because of you know rage at poverty and underdevelopment and elite corruption. So so here I'm just kind of gesturing in in broad you know brushstrokes to a just really complex conflict and and U.S. security assistance, which kind of sounds so innocuous to begin with, is is contributing to and, and intensifying really uh, a very local conflict with really complex local dynamics because it's empowering the government to say, you know, these guys are the terrorists and cracking down on them with violence. Sure. And as we know, uh, if a government just shouts terrorism, especially if it's a U.S. aligned government, uh, Washington will look the other way or will we'll simply assume that that must be what's going on uh, without looking any closer. Absolutely. Um, and uh, I, I noticed well, one of the details in your article that you mentioned uh, talking about the recruitment uh, into insurgent groups, it was something like 80% said they had joined because of government action. Exactly. Uh, which, yep. which is, I mean, that, that illustrates very clearly how militarized counterterrorism uh, completely fails on its own terms. It, it 
it creates more of the problem uh, that it's supposed to be reducing. Absolutely. Um, Not to mention all the people that it's killing along the way. Absolutely. Right. So, so that's the first thing when you're yes. talking about, you know, efficacy or whatever of the strategy, it's like, well, how many people have the U S post nine 11 wars killed compared to how many people um, died in the, you know, the nine 11 attacks. Right. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, that was something like just over 3000 and, and our research at the cost of war project has shown that 929,000 people have died in the U.S. post-9-11 wars around the world. So it's just a, a kind of astronomically other scale. Right, and, and that's, that's really a conservative estimate. That's, that's based right. on what, what you're able to actually verify. It's, it's probably, when, when you factor in uh, deaths from other causes, it's, it's actually much higher than that, right? Exactly, the, the, what we call reverberating effects or indirect deaths, the you know, collapse of infrastructure and sewage systems and all the ways that people can suffer and die beyond you know, direct bombs and bullets. Um, but I do want to go back to that point about um, you know, the, the, the kind of counterproductive effect of this security assistance. Um, and what I wrote in that piece, it's, it's just really striking because even, you know, military insiders and security experts within the U.S. government are saying, there was an article at the uh, a West Point Center for Terrorism Studies uh, that I quoted in that, in that piece that said, uh, quote, Africa is in many ways worse for the fix. So there are people within the military who are really recognizing this as a problem that, that U.S. actions have been counterproductive um, it, when you're thinking about the goal of reducing militant, violent attacks. Um, but what's fascinating and disturbing is that even as as there is that admission, there is in parallel a kind of a setting up of, you know, Africa as the next hotspot of terrorist violence and a a real kind of, okay, well, well, next time we'll do it bigger and better and more effectively rather than a stepping back and a saying, well, let's actually ask the big questions for example, how much of a terrorist, so-called terrorist threat to, to the U.S. does Africa really pose? Um, and, and, you know, are, are, are U.S. military actions protecting people? And if not, then which they're not, then, you know, what should we be doing instead? Instead, instead there's this kind of rhetoric of, of a doubling down. And I think, you know, what's, what's dangerous in, under a Biden administration, just as under the Obama administration, is that the kind of, um, there, there's a lot of kind of liberal sentiment and liberal language around, you know, doing things better and with more respect for human rights. Um, and I think we really have to be wary of um, the, 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 the words that belie the actions, right? So, so words are one thing and, and the kind of, you know, nod to human rights. And then there's what is the, what is the U S government and the U S military actually doing in these places? And when it comes at the barrel of a gun, so to speak, right. With, with, you know, all this military equipment and military logic, um, then, then how can it possibly be, uh, helping people? Thank you, Stephanie, and thanks for coming on the show. I'm a big, huge fan of Cost of War Project and want to talk a little bit about that. But be, but before I do, um, I was wondering, just to, to continue on this thread, we had a story up at Responsible Statecraft recently 
uh, warning about language in the uh, National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, that actually put more money into military aid uh, for AFRICOM based on a great power competition, yeah. actually wanting to thwart the influence of, US, uh, of China and Russia in Africa. Um, in your in your readings and research, have you seen any any shift, however slight, coming going from uh, counterterrorism to great power competition? And what do you make of all that? Absolutely, yeah. No, I've been doing some newer research with um, U.S. military personnel and um, civilians in in the government working on Africa. And you know, I, I've been hearing. I mean, just as we hear in the media. Uh, the military is talking about that strategic shift to great power competition. We see it playing out on the ground in terms of um, the, the kind of priorities that are motivating a lot of the partnership building and security assistance programming that's happening in Africa um, from the U.S. military perspective. It, it, it absolutely, there is a shift in terms of, um, you know, you, that is what I see as the latest justification for U.S. militarism uh, and and um, it, it's, it's motivating um, similar kinds of security assistance, assistance and, and secure, similar kinds of partnership building um, as counterterrorism. Counterterrorism is in a lot of ways like a pretext, right? Because the U.S. will want to, um, for example, sell a particular partner country a weapons system that then the U.S. can secure a contract to train that country in and, and not Russia and China, right? So, so we definitely see this, um, this kind of, you know, new Cold War type scenario playing out on the ground already. That kind of funding that's in, you know, up, up in the NDAA um, will, will certainly intensify and, and make this kind of thing worse. And again, you know, it's th this is the kind of thing that we, we really need to be active in, in, you know, holding our government accountable for because um, it's, it's going to intensify the local dynamics of conflicts in ways that I described in Burkina Faso that's going to happen in a lot of different places. And I will just add that, um, you know, I've been starting to speak with some African counterparts um, and they, you know, they're smart. They're, they think about, you know, well, the U.S. basically has just a ton of money to offer. Um, the, the, the scale of U.S. assistance is greater than any of the other partners so far. But if the U.S., for example, um, will outlaw um, work with a particular unit under the Leahy law because they've been documented as being involved in human rights violations, then um, they can go to the Chinese or, or, or the Russians and, and secure the kinds of um, assistance that they, that they're looking for. So, um, so they're, you know, they, they can definitely use this to their advantage and, and we need to kind of continue holding those governments accountable um, for those kinds of behaviors too, and not assume that just because um, there, there's a central government in power in some of these places that they're the, that they're the actors that we want to support. And, you know, if they're engaging in these human rights violations, then, then, you know, we need to think very carefully about, how we're working with them. We kind of got ourselves into a muddle in that 
you know, once these um, partners on the ground get a sense that we um, are so very concerned about great power competition on the continent, that they could actually use that as a leverage against us. Like you said, if, if we, if they sense that we will own, we will continue to give them the aid that they're looking for. If they, if they, they even signal that they would turn to the Russians or the Chinese uh, for assistance in our stead, um, that seems like they got us over a barrel and we have nobody to really um, blame but ourselves for that. Yeah, and I think you're right. And I think, you know, when you're talking about Africa in particular, um, we can't fail as well to think about the dimensions of race and racism that are at stake in this kind of activity, right? Because, um, you know, Africa... is is the target of a lot of even unknowing or unthinking kind of racial tropes and stereotypes. And and President Bush um, in his, in, you know, when he began the the post 9-11 wars, what he called the war on terror, um, he talked about it as, you know, extending U.S. authority to quote every dark corner of the world, right? His idea was this logic of preemptive war and we got to go out and, you know, extend authority before the terrorists can come and get us. And there's, there is... um, um, there's a very um, th- there's a very kind of racialized undertone or even explicit language um, that he used and that continues to be deployed in some of this in some of these scenarios. Like just thinking about these places in Africa as you know undergoverned or or fragile. Like a lot of the language that the U.S. government uses to talk about these places, um, and and we really need to to watch out for that as well, I think. Yeah, and I don't want to, I know we're running out of time, but I don't want to be remiss and, and to ask you a little bit about cost of war, because as a reporter, I had uh, used cost of war reports as a valuable tool uh, for, for metrics and data and analysis um, in terms of uh, civilian costs, as well as financial costs of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I, and I took note that when we were, the U.S. was withdrawing militarily from Afghanistan, there was a lot of use of cost of war tools, reports, analysis by um, the media at the time. I was wondering from your perspective, um, you know, what is your uh, grand takeaway in terms of what you were able to, uh, as a campaign, as an effort uh, to contribute to the understanding of the war um, and how you feel now that, you know, uh, we've seen some sort of end game there. Uh, Not so happy, but, you know, an end nonetheless. Right. Yeah. Thanks so much for, for that question. We were, you know, we were really gratified when, when president Biden mentioned our research in his speech about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, it was, you know, he said researchers at Brown university have estimated that Afghanistan has cost $2 trillion. Uh, and that's a point that sounds so small, but it's the, it was the product of years of effort on our part to, um, work on getting the, the media to, to kind of turn to us as a go-to source and, and build up our, our legitimacy and credibility and saying, actually the wars cost way more than what the Pentagon says they have. You have to take into account 
veterans care and interest on war borrowing and all these other things. And that's what the cost of war project really does. It's like, let's take a step back. Let's take a broader view of costs. And, and all of it, all of it is in service of, as I said earlier, pushing the big questions, getting the American public to think critically about militarism and war and, and changing up, ending some of the pillars of belief that allow the, you know, unquestioning militarized status quo to continue. Of course, that's propped up by, you know, military industrial complex and all the economics and politics that are involved in that. But but part of it is that that uh, American culture and society is also very war ready. And, 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 you know, that's been true since the Indian Wars when this, we were, you know, the U.S. established itself as, as a nation. So, um, you know, I think, I think getting so much publicity and and having so many interviews, having the media turn to us in that moment when we were withdrawing from Afghanistan, um, it was a culmination really of years and years of of work and effort. And we were we were very proud um, to be uh, to be in that spot. Um, at the same time that we were disheartened at everything that uh, was going on, you know, in terms of the suffering and and uh, that's happening in Afghanistan, it's just just horrible to see. So, um, you know, we, we we've always said it was a necessary step to do the U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, it's not nearly enough. We need to continue to shine a light on so many aspects of U.S. militarism, uh, Russia and China just being the latest justification, uh, but even the counterterror operations that are still continuing in, you know, 85 countries in the world. So we, we just have a lot that the peace movement and, and the, you know, the research that, that people are using our work in service, uh, in service of just, we have a, a lot more to go. I should say that again, the, <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the ways that people are using our, our research to support uh, the peace movement um, and to support government accountability and transparency on these issues um, uh, is is great. And there's just so much more to be done. Absolutely. And we, we really appreciate the work that you've already done. And uh, thank you again for coming on the show, uh, Dr. Stephanie Saville, uh, co-director of the Cost of War Project. Uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world one episode at a time.